Welcome to The Sacred Life, an exploration of the mysteries at the center of the Christian faith, hosted by brothers David and John Baylor. Today we discuss salvation. We challenge the conception of salvation as a one-and-done decision. Thinking about it in such a way drives us toward evangelism, but we're lost when it comes to discipleship and spiritual maturity. We discuss the importance of that pivotal salvation moment where the trajectory of our life turns from one direction to the other, but there's a danger in making Christianity all about that pivotal moment in our personal past. We want to emphasize instead the journey in that new trajectory, that continual growth in Christ, and that quest to become like Him. Thank you for joining us in the Sacred Life. What is the purpose of Christianity? For a lot of Christians, um, for a lot of Christian teachers and a lot of churches, it's about the salvation of the soul of the individual so that that person can go to heaven and not go to hell. Um, yeah, so I guess like we'd like to call that into question and say, like, if you look at, at the narrative of Scripture and the mission, especially of Jesus Christ, it kind of appears as if that's not the central focus. Like, the salvation of the individual isn't actually the central focus of the gospel. But maybe you could say it's the point at which the world pivots. So, like, we were talking about this a little, to kind of warm up for this discussion, like, maybe one way you could frame it is in the narrative of Scripture, and, like, the narrative of history itself, you have this descent, the fall of man, and this descent of mankind and of history away from paradise, like, man is cast out of paradise in the fall, and is, like, intentionally, like, increasingly becoming more and more corrupt, that is moving further and further from paradise, and, like, the call of Scripture, the call of the Gospel, and the message of Gospel is ultimately the return to paradise. And so salvation, you could say, is that moment of pivot, that moment of change, um, like Christ calls us to repentance. And repentance, if you look at the meaning of the word, is actually, like, to change your mind. And you could, you could tie that in with this idea, like, to change the direction in which you're going. So before salvation and repentance you're moving away from paradise and then salvation is this pivot towards paradise so the goal of the christian i guess in this way of looking at things isn't salvation but salvation is the pivot that moves you towards the goal okay well that seems like in, in some ways um that's sort of the same thing as what everybody's already saying anyways because um that moment of pivot is the most important defining moment in your life. So, what's the issue then? Well, so it's like you, you it, it, it's a, it's a, a process, I guess. It's like the start of a new way of walking, you could say, uh, a new way of being. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is like the, like we're challenging this notion of salvation that modern Christians seem to have. Like, but we're not throwing it out. We're not saying, like, salvation isn't important. Salvation isn't at the center of Christianity. Like, we're saying it is at the center of Christianity, but maybe in a different way than you're used to thinking. Well, I mean, in a way, if I pull something out of what you said, it sounds like the purpose is uh, the new way of walking, the walking in newness of life, um, that, that that is the purpose rather than the moment of turning. Right. Um, and I mean, just to go back, I made a general statement of what do churches believe, and 
I guess uh, I I'll mention again this evangelical idea, which we've touched on in a, a past episode. Um, the the evangelical idea is that um, the Christian faith is all about salvation, and when you when you attain salvation, um, the there's nothing left except to extend salvation to other people. Yeah. But but you have like um, you have this big issue of like if if I'm saved, um, what is my purpose in life? Um, and I mean, in in the Bible, not everyone is an evangelist, and not everyone is supposed to be. So if you're saved and you're not actively evangelizing people, then then you have no purpose. Right. Um, yeah, which what is it, like something I've. I, you like have I've you have like no call. You have no um, no responsibility as a Christian. You have no vision for um, what is the purpose of my life if I'm not out there evangelizing. Yeah, I um, mean, like I'll just express with that, like to just tie that in personally, like that's something I struggled with, like this idea, like I'm a good Christian, aiming for these Christian things and then trying to live a Christian life, and like the most Christian thing in this way of understanding is to be a missionary. And I tried it. Mm -hmm. um, and like things kept coming. Like, for example, I went to China, like in the hopes of like this, maybe moving myself towards being a missionary of some kind. So I was going to go to China and work with the Chinese people. Instead of my plan of being a missionary to the Chinese people working out, what ends up happening is I go there, I'm there for a couple of weeks, and then I get arrested and deported. And like it was, it was like a moment, I guess like a moment of realization and of turning for me is like, this isn't, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be going and evangelizing in this way. And like this process of trying to figure out like, how do you deal with that? Like you're so accustomed to this teaching that the ultimate goal of Christianity is to raise up missionaries. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I mean, like deportation means, well, uh, I'm I'm gonna be kind of a um, uh, black or white about this, but that means you failed in your mission, right? Um, instead of being able to to use that time to win converts to Christ, the you're done, you're kicked out of the country, and um, yeah, so like if, I... if so, and, and that has nothing to do with like your own faults or anything like that. So. Um, if if your purpose is evangelism and you fail in a way like that, um, like that's kind of a shame that you failed in your whole purpose in life. Uh, I don't know if, if my point makes sense there, but like there's something unfair about it if that's your whole purpose and uh -huh. and it all hinges on um, on your mission being successful and on you being able to raise the money to go do a mission trip and all these yeah, things. Yeah, right. So, like, I'd like to add to that also. So, like, first of all, it's necessary to say I have, I guess you would say, this kind of obsession with numbers and with patterns and with meaning. Um, and, like, as far as I know, I always have. I can't recall ever not having that kind of obsession. Mm -hmm. So it was significant to me that the date I was arrested in China was September 9th, 2009, which would be 999. And so, like... That's German for no, no, no. <laughs> That's um, one way of looking at it. <laughs> but it's also, like, there's meaning in the number nine. Mm -hmm. um, you could say it's, like, finality. 
it's or completeness or wholeness is one way you could look at it like it's the highest single digit number there is mm -hmm. um and there's also like this kind of idea of judgment so it's also significant nine is three threes um you know three is an important number three like the, you have the trinity and things like that um but like what really stuck to me is just this idea of judgment and there was a sense like in some way this is a judgment upon me and work out like what is that judgment and coming like to the understanding judgment isn't a bad thing so like we have the last judgment and we're all going to face the last judgment whether that's a good thing or a bad thing depends on how you look at the judge how you relate to the judge so like the fires of judgment like they're for those that are in opposition to god are burning in their condemnation and death to those that uh, are in line with god they're god's love mm -hmm. so it's like understand that when i say this is judgment upon me like that's not necessarily um like i was consumed and burned up and cast out in that way but like there's this realization like there's something wrong there's something off in the way that i'm going about this and either i can make myself opposed to the judge who has judged me in this way and so this these fires of judgment that have come down on me will just burn me and i'll be cast out and you know practically speaking that's like my face collapses like you're talking about like this is unfair this isn't right i've dedicated my life to this thing and did everything i could to make it work and you know felt like god's hand was in it and all of these things and all of a sudden bam here you go you're arrested and deported I was like wow well, how's that fair um you know i'm doing what a christian's supposed to do aren't i or i can look at it as like well you know this is god's judgment upon me god's judgment and his love are the same thing this is god's hand of love upon me also mm -hmm. and like that's an important understanding and that relates i guess back to this idea of salvation um but the reason I bring up this story is like this is a this is a pivotal a pivotal moment a pivotal moment in my understanding that shifted the way I look at like the drive and the purpose of my face helping me to see things that I wasn't I would say I wasn't open to seeing because I thought I understood it before then and realizing how foolish I was to think that I understood it. Mhm. Mm you know, something else, um, when you're talking about your missions experience, which is a, a little bit more than mine, but I went on a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic, and um, we uh, it was just a week long. It was a spring break trip when I was in college. We spent uh, most of the week doing service projects, and the last two days we went to a resort hotel on the ocean, um, and it, it, um, I mean, it, it's something like, I, I still feel like, like somehow I have some personal guilt in doing that. Um, it, you know, it wasn't my decision or anything like that, but, 
Um, I, I asked people to support me on the trip. Like people gave me money so that I could go to the Dominican Republic as a missionary. And instead we're spending two days in a resort hotel. Right. And, and again, I mean, you talk about patterns. Um, I see that as a pattern. There's a, um, someone else who was, uh, involved in our church when we were young, who became a full-time missionary. And, um, I've mostly heard this from other kids. They'll see like he's, you know, posts on Facebook, how he's going hang gliding and all this kind of stuff. Like this is the thing that he's doing with the money that people gave him so that he could be a missionary. Um, and the reason that I point this out as a pattern is because if you've got this idea that, um, salvation is what it's all about and what we need to do is raise up missionaries to go, um, evangelize other people throughout the world. Um, our missionaries, they don't seem to be very compelled by that idea in practice. Yeah. Um, they're going to go out and, and uh, have a good time and go to the resorts. Uh, now, I mean, I, I can't, I don't want to make that as a sweeping condemnation of, of missionaries in general because that's not fair. But, but I do want to make the point that um, obviously there's this sense where people feel like that's not enough. Going out and, and uh, extending salvation to other people, somehow that's not that's not gripping for me. That's not really a good mission for my life. Right. So I'm going to do something else that's that that makes it worthwhile for me to pursue the mission's lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, oh, it just writes to me why you're while you're saying that. Um, so we have this document from the very early church. Um, it's the Didache. I'm not exactly sure how you say it. That'd be roughly its ancient Greek way of saying it. I'm not sure what the normal way to say it in English is. Um, anyway, in there, there's quite a bit of talk about um, evangelists and apostles. Like, and at that point in the history of the church, the idea of an apostle, it doesn't necessarily always refer to the 12 apostles. It might also be a term for an evangelist. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it talks about that. It says, um, it basically says, an evangelist should live in poverty. Yeah. And if 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 he's taking money from you, he's a Christ monger. That's what it calls. Him. Like I, I'm hesitant to say that because I know I'm going to step on some toes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I'll, I'll step on my own toes. Yeah. Um, but like that's just something that always has struck me. And we look at our own history as Anabaptists, like arising from. Well, the Anabaptists of the 16th century and also the so-called heretics of the Middle Ages, like that's how they lived. Mm -hmm. They were, they're, they're missionaries, they're evangelists. Like they weren't anything comparable to a modern evangelist. Yeah. Instead what they were, they were people that were poor and had nothing and traveled around. Um, so like both in early Anabaptist history and also like examples of... Uh, traveling missionaries among the heretics of the Middle Ages, they put something of an emphasis of them wearing sandals, um, which is like for them a symbol of poverty. Mm -hmm. So it's like the idea is in order to be a missionary, you accept a life of poverty and suffering. And that is like your, your putting on of the gospel. Anyway, this is drifting quite a bit yeah. from salvation. No, I, I, I'll make the comment before we get off that. My, my wife was also the, the daughter of missionaries. Um, and 
they they did live in poverty. Yeah. Um, right, which and, is important to point and, out. There are missionaries that. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it was it was actually like a great strain on on her family and on her mother in particular, um, and uh, I mean, I won't go into too much detail uh, on that, but I mean, like, but they lived in real poverty. Yeah. And she kind of gets mad at me whenever I. I <laughs> I say like, well, I'll say bad things about missionaries, um, and for obvious reasons. But yet she also acknowledges that um, she's gone back to visit, and and gone back to the house where she worked as missionary, as or where her parents did rather, um, and seen that house is still in use by the same missions organization, um, and the people that are living there now, they they've got like so many clothes they can't fit them all in the closets and like. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, my wife recognizes that there's there's a very different within this one missions organization. There's a very different character than there was when she grew up. Um, in in my experience throughout my life, whenever I've seen missions, I have never seen poverty. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I I have, but not among American missionaries. Yeah. Um. You know, like having been in Asia, like there are Asian, like native Asian missionaries that have given up everything to be missionaries. Like living in poverty or like without a home at all. And like cast out by their own people. And you see, like you hear stories of the same thing in the Middle East. Um, anyway, I don't want to go too far down that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you keep saying you don't want to go down it, but I, I keep wanting to bring up one more thing. <laughs> when I when I was uh, visiting um, Taylor University, where I went to college, um, before I attended there, um, there was somebody that was, like, leading a tour or something like that, um, that had a shirt that said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter, um, which I found, like, I don't know, powerful. Um, it was it was an idea that struck me in a positive way at the time, and um, then in my time at Taylor, I I guess I I felt like a lot of uh, um, people guilt tripping one another to be involved in missions trips, yeah. and and again I I've only brought missions up in the first place to say that um, the work of the mission like missionaries aren't aren't they don't seem to really be buying it. Well, yeah, and like that's what I, my immediate response to that idea of guilt tripping. It goes back to our last <clears> conversation. <throat> that that to me is very strong evidence that you don't believe it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And you like that's just like a natural response, a natural response. I'm tripping over my words a lot today. A natural response of somebody who has who holds their own beliefs in doubt is that they will drag everybody else in with them. Because, like, they're trying to prove to themselves that they're right. Yeah. And and use a kind of social proof to do it. Like, yeah. if I can force everybody around me to act this way, then I can believe that I'm right. Yeah. Um, which is an illogical thing. When you say it out loud, it sounds like, why would why would you think that way? But it's, but, but also, you do, the way, <laughs> it's also the way you think. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I mean is is uh, I mean it, it's very similar to something that's positive, which is um, I believe something and it's so valuable to me that I want to to share it with other people. Um, like those, 
those things feel so similar that it's easy to do the bad thing and think you're doing the good thing. Right, so let's go back to this idea of salvation. So first of all, I'll say this sort of evangelistic idea of salvation, like it's that salvation is the point of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Which the is point that, of Christianity. again the missionary or imposter thing. Like. Yeah, the point of Christianity is to bring souls to Christ. That's how they'll say it. Mm -hmm. um, in contrast to that, you can say the, the point of Christianity is the redemption of the world, which sounds very similar, but it's not the same thing. Um, so to illustrate this, let's go back to the story of the crucifixion and relate that to the fall of man in Genesis. So there are a number of symbols in the crucifixion that are like taking symbols of the fall and of the curse of Adam and reversing them. And you'll see this language a lot, like in very early Christian writings, like pointing these things out. So like one thing they'll say, which doesn't make sense at first, is that, so Adam eats of the knowledge of the tree, or of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, out of his own pride. And so the result of that is his fall. And so like, the, there, there's the curse that God has placed on the tree that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And Adam does die. So first he figuratively dies in that he's cast out of paradise. But then also like he literally takes on mortality and death. But then like they say Jesus does the opposite of that. He eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in humility. And he also dies. But since he did it in humility instead of pride, he's like instead of falling, he is restored. Like, this is the return to paradise. It's like reversing the sin of Adam. And so there's another of other symbols that they point out that go along with this. First of all, when he enters into Jerusalem, he curses the fig tree. And like, you've probably heard this symbol, like Peugeot talks about the same symbol. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've read this also in early Christian writings. They point out, when Adam and Eve eat of the tree, the first thing they do is recognize their nakedness, which is their mortality and their vulnerability and their sinfulness. They recognize it, and so they attempt to cover their sin by making for themselves coverings out of fig leaves. And Jesus curses the fig tree and says, no one will ever eat of you again. Um, and to the Christians, to the early Christians, this is Jesus saying, this covering that mankind has made for himself, for his sins, nobody, like, nobody, you, you, won't, you won't do this anymore. This has been reversed. Mm -hmm. um, so he curses the fig tree and it withers and dies this is him reversing the fall and then when he is being tortured they make for him a crown of thorns so like the thorns is one of the symbols of the, of the curse of Adam that uh, he says to Adam like there'll be thorns. God's, God says to Adam, there's going to be thorns. Like you're going to have to work the ground and toil and sweat to get your food. And gonna, there's going to be thorns. And like, I don't think I have to get into the details of what thorns are like, both literally and figuratively. But so like, the thorns are a curse upon Adam. And Jesus wears the curse as a crown. Like he crowns himself with the curse. And so this again is like the reversal. It's, it's a curse. It's a curse 
upon Adam, but it's a crown of glory upon Christ and by extension upon the Christian. Mm -hmm. Take upon himself the curse. <clears throat> so it's like there's this idea that Jesus is taking the curse, taking the fall of man and reversing it. And like the reason that relates to this, this idea of salvation is what salvation is, is the return to paradise. So again, like we said at the beginning, it's the reversal of the cycle. The cycle of the Old Testament and of the book of Genesis especially is the descent out of paradise. The descent off of the mountain is the way ancient people represent it. That paradise is the top of a mountain and you're descending down into sin basically and what jesus does is he reverses that now we're returning to paradise okay but returning to paradise that doesn't sound very much different than uh um the aim of the christian life is to go to heaven and not go to hell um yeah so i guess one way i'd respond to that is just by saying that when jesus is talking about paradise he's talking about a literal thing and like we have this this is the like the the image of of revelations is that a new jerusalem comes down and that the garden of paradise is restored materially upon the earth and that you are resurrected like this is also the message of christ that you will be resurrected bodily like there's a literal material resurrection of the dead mm -hmm. so like this is what this is what the scripture talks about. And like he doesn't tell the thief, today you'll be with me in heaven. He tells him today you'll be with me in paradise. Which could be the same thing or they could be different things. Like the point I would make is when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven in his parables and in his sermons, it always it appears to me like he's talking about something that is currently present, like a current reality. Mm -hmm. Like aligning yourself with something that exists right now, not aiming for something that you'll experience after you die. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's very clear. If you look at like any of these these descriptions of what the kingdom of heaven is like, um, then it it doesn't. He's not talking about this is what the afterlife is like, and this this message, "Repent ye, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand," is his central message. That's what he goes out and tells, tells people. Um, that's what he tells his disciples to tell people. Um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand is, is this, this thing that you say is like it's, it's here currently. Um, you just, if you just reach out your hand, you can, you can be there. Right. You can have it with you. Um, and, and even in the Lord's Prayer, you get this like, uh, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which maybe that makes it sound like heaven is a separate place, but the prayer is for like for those two things to come to, together. Um, like this is the the pattern of my life, the uh, the purpose of my life. Maybe I should say because I, I've been I've been criticizing this idea that salvation is the purpose of life. That that going to heaven after death is the purpose of life. Now I, I don't I don't say this like some people get on this track and say like well, who cares about an afterlife? Yeah. Um, which, no, and like that's which, what I said. Like, I think there's still the image of paradise and the like, the resurrection of the dead. Right. Like, there's an afterlife. You'd better care about it. Well, and if you don't, then it's like then then you are rejecting the promises of God. Yeah. Um, you are you are rejecting um, the authority of Scripture. 
Um, and I mean, we're all, you know, about open questions and all that, but, uh, but I, I think there are a lot of people who kind of, who attack the idea of heaven, uh, or the idea of an afterlife kind of heaven. And the reason that they attack it is because of some of the, the same complaints that we've raised already. Yeah, and so like people might take what we're saying and like come to the conclusion like, well, the point of Christianity is to live a good life. It's like, well, that's not the point. That's part of the process. Mm -hmm. Like that's something that goes along with the process of Christianity. And like I think, like for myself, I don't know exactly what's going on in your head, but for myself, like the overall point, just to tie it all together, is that like you have this idea of salvation as like the axis upon which your own world pivots, um, or like the point at which it it turns upon itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, but like it's also like I guess the image I have in my mind is is that like reality of like. Portraying reality as a wheel, and salvation is at the pivot, is at the center. It's the point at which all things pivot, revolve. Like that's also where Christ is. Like Christ is at the center of the universe. He's at the center of existence. Mm -hmm. um, so like you can't, you can't separate Christ and salvation from each other. Like salvation is so tied in with, like it's tied, it is Christ. Like if that makes sense. Like, this idea of salvation is putting yourself into Christ. It's like you start to see that, like, at the center, at the center of the wheel, that's that point upon which the world turns, and it is Christ himself. Um, I don't know, that might just be complete nonsense. <laughs> it makes sense to me, I'll put it that way. <laughs> I'm trying to talk about an image in my mind that I don't quite know how to mm -hmm. put into words. Um... But like that's also an ancient image, like it's in the Bible, and it's also used all over the world, and Christians have used it a lot well, throughout our history. Well, I've, I've mentioned this idea to you recently, the idea of the Axis Mundi, and you've you've mentioned a couple of things, the, the mountain that you speak about. I mean, you're kind of referring to Peugeot in that discussion, but but a mountain is the Axis Mundi, which is the center of the world. Yeah. Um, now you're talking about um, Christ being the center, right. and you are aligning yourself with the center. Um, the the term axis mundi, it is an old astronomy term, um, but uh, Mircea Eliade, like in the 50s, started using this to describe um, this sort of spiritual center of the world. And um, a couple of quintessential axis mundi images are, are sacred mountains, um, sacred trees, and the sacred tree is a good one because if you think of like uh, Yggdrasil, you think of the, the, the ash tree of Norse mythology, then it reaches up into heaven and the roots of it descend into hell. Um, uh, Carl Jung says no tree, no tree can reach into heaven unless its roots descend into hell. Right. Um, and uh, which I... Um, which it's, is also it's like, this idea. It's like, like any any time you you move into a sacred space, you are moving to the center of the world. Now, Mircea Eliade also talks about like 
um, tribes where when you, it's been a few years since I've read this, so I'm, I got to be kind of vague in the way I speak about it. Um, tribes where when you're going to build a house, the house is the dwelling of the family, which is like you could say the family is a type of, of uh, microcosm. So it's a type of cosmos. Um, it's a it's like a, a family is like a sacred culture all to itself. Um, and, and the head of the family is like a priest. Yeah. But I'll just finish up the image. When you're building a house, you're therefore, you're building a sacred place. You're building a kind of temple. And it's not, it's not sacred to the community like, the, like your actual temple is, um, but it's sacred to the family. And so you have a priest come when you're building a house, and the first stake, the priest identifies where to drive the first stake, and you drive it into the head of a, of a serpent that sits in the center of the world. Um, every house, wherever you build it, if you're in this tradition, every house is is anchored to the center of the world. Right. Um, so it's it's not like, I mean, it's it's a spiritual center. It's not a geographical center. Um, and 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 religious experience is a way to um, to approach the center, to approach the mountaintop. Yeah, and it, like it's important to remember, like when you're talking about that center or that anchor of reality, that that is Christ. That thing. Right. So I listed off a bunch of Axis Mundi, but the cross is also a quintessential Axis Mundi, which does yeah. reach into heaven and also, does reach into hell. Also Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, right. So like Jacob's Ladder, I can't remember exactly how it's described in Scripture. Like, does it have people ascending and descending? Yeah. I, I thought it. No, I, I think because it's traditional angels ascending and descending. Yeah, because tradi traditional depictions of it have the ladder reaching, <clears throat> like from heaven to hell. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's that same thing. It's the axis mundi. Right. Um, it's like, and Christians will recognize that <coughs> Jacob is having a vision of Christ. Mm -hmm. The ladder is Christ. Um, um, this this is also a symbol, not only that you see in a lot of religious traditions. Um, but you see, uh, people see these things in dreams for one, but I was going to mention near-death experiences, um, where, um, like, a, a common classification, Jacob's Ladder is used as a way of classifying, uh, certain types of, of near-death experiences. Um, there was, there was this, um, some kind of bridge or some kind of tunnel or passageway that moved between, between the worlds mm -hmm. that a person experienced like while their heart was not beating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like this idea, like as Christ is the center, as the axis or axis mundi upon which the world turns or however you want to phrase it. I, I realize I'm using language that's kind of probably bizarre to a lot of people. Um, like if you, if you see the pattern, if you see the meaning, you realize Paul also says this. He talks about Christ, like Christ is ascended. And like we know that Christ is ascended but what is it that he also first descended into the depths of the earth? Mm -hmm. And like this is an important symbol, like especially in the Middle Ages, but but basically from the beginning of Christianity, like before Christ can ascend into heaven, he first must descend into the depths of hell. So, and like this again ties to this idea of salvation. It's like for the salvation to occur, for Christ to ascend, for Christ to be resurrected, he first must descend into the depths of hell. Um, and conquer it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of really, really old hymns on this subject, and a lot of really great writing on this subject. Of you know, we would today refer to it as the harrowing of hell. That Christ descends into hell, 
and like the hymns will refer to it like Hades had thought that it won and Christ it had had Christ in its midst mm -hmm. and but then Christ conquers hell itself well so it's like not only does Christ redeem man but he redeems hell mm-hmm um, which isn't like I, I need to I need to put a disclaimer on that like this isn't this claim that uh, like there's no there's no damnation claim that Christ descends into hell and redeems the damned like it's not that same thing um, it's a different meaning yeah well um, so I, I, I feel like in some ways one this is maybe a little esoteric um, but also mm -hmm. it, we're uh, we're only tangentially connected to this question of salvation which is okay um, well, but I think but there's there's to... a thread that's come up um, in in my mind that's come up over and over which I haven't mentioned yet but is is this connection between um, like ultimate sorrow and ultimate joy um, in the the axis mundi image like like the spiritual center is something that descends down into the depths and rises to to the highest heaven um, but also you mentioned like the crown of thorns for example and these these curses that we see in the 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 fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis there's a um, there's like if you look at those things you can identify ways in which all of those things that are written down as curses um, are also blessings and actually yeah. the uh, in 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 the Middle Ages, there was also uh, an important idea, the Felix Culpa, which is the happy fall. Um, the fall of man and all these curses are a happy thing. And in the Middle Ages, it's especially tied to this idea that um, if, 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 uh, um, well, Nehada the apple talking bin, the apple talking bin, um, never will to marry a bin heaven a queen. Um, if, if Adam had not eaten the apple, then Mary would never have been queen of heaven. So it's it's tied with this kind of Mariology in particular. Yeah. Um, but but still, like it, it's a it's this important theological concept that um, that these cursings are blessings. Mm -hmm. And then you also see we talked about the difference between uh, the mindset of a, of an ancient Christian or a medieval Christian as opposed to a modern Christian. And part of it, I think, is that the the cross does not descend to hell for a modern Christian in the way that it did for all of the Christians of the past. Yeah. Um, salvation does not include that um, that reaching down into the depths. And another thing that you saw in these in these um, ancient and medieval Christians was was this idea of joyful sorrow. Yeah. Um, this idea that that there is pain and there is suffering for the Christian and that's simply a part of your life and yet there's also this um, this absolute joy that yeah. is with you all the way so it's like you stand with one foot in heaven and the other in hell right and and so if you or it, a better it, way I guess to phrase it is that you extend from heaven to hell yeah like, right or from hell to heaven right and if you don't do that then what you wind up with is a Christianity that views success and happiness as being the ultimate purpose. Yeah, which but you can't stay there all the time. So what happens? Like this is something I realize, like encountering, like my own like continual back and forth, and also that of like my friends, and like hearing one of my friends make this comment, like I'm so tired of this struggle. 
of like being on top and then like being in the depths. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I heard this idea of perfect joy and perfect sorrow and I realized like in that moment, like, well, that's because you're not doing that. It's because you're rejecting, like you're not, you're not, you're not standing at the center. And so like what happens is you're trying to climb the ladder and like you're trying to stay at the top and like not realizing what like the foundation the foot of it is in the depths of hell mm -hmm. yeah and, and we've mentioned the significance of martyrs to the church um as well and well yeah this, so it's this like sort of like, sense that that like uh, uh, um, a mature church is kind of a church of martyrs yeah but so there's like there's that question we have these stories from the early church and from our own Anabaptist martyrs of, I guess I will say saints, going to their death, knowing that they're going to a horrible, painful, brutal death and singing, mm -hmm. joyfully singing. And like even some like in the Middle Ages being burned alive and singing, like how is that even physically possible mm -hmm. to be burning alive and singing? Yeah. Yeah, but um, I mean, there's almost you could you could ask the opposite question, like, um, how is faith possible if you can't do that? Right. Because if you can't, eventually trials will come, and and your faith will not stand. Not just your individual yeah. faith, but like which the, I think is a good way the, to put the it. community of faith that you are a part of will not endure. I think like that's a really good way to put it. Like, look at your martyrdom um, symbolically that like you're going to face martyrdom like you're going to be like you're going to face the fires of judgment um and when you do like if you're not rooted then you can't sing and like excuse me like encountering this personally like sometimes when you're depressed like you know the way out of it like, you always know the way out of it I've never been in like in a moment where I'm just really down and depressed where I haven't known exactly how to get out of it, mm -hmm. but I don't want to. Yeah. It's like, and I, I know exactly what I'm doing and I know what I'm doing is stupid and I know what I'm thinking is backwards and I know that there's no good reason for me just not to do the thing that will reverse it immediately. Yeah. But it's just like, I don't want to. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you got to be cautious when you're talking about depression um, but, but it is true, like somebody that is depressed, um, they, they, it's not the knowledge that they lack. You're right. Um, it's, it's the, the motivation. Yeah. Like with that, like obviously the disclaimer that you're getting at is there is such a thing as clinical depression, like something that's beyond your control. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm speaking about clinical depression. I mean, you say it's beyond your control, like not having the willpower, the motivation to like, I mean, anybody who's depressed knows like, okay, I'm just laying here on my couch and... My life would be better if I got up and went for a walk. Yeah. But it, I mean, that's what I say. It doesn't matter that you have the knowledge. Like, that doesn't mean you have the ability to do it. Uh, like, you have the, uh, well, I'll just say, like, the psychic ability. Um, right. Well, it's like sometimes it's as simple as, like, I know that if I just make the choice to not be depressed, like, that might sound stupid. <laughs> but, like, I know if I just make the choice to not be depressed, or, like, if I make the choice to sing... Like something as simple as that, mm -hmm. or praise and worship God, 
like in the depths of hell, I know that that will restore my joy. But it's just like I'm, I'm unwilling to do it. Yeah, well, unwilling, I mean, like I said, for, for somebody who's, who's clinically depressed, uh, unwilling can literally mean you're not able to do it. Right. Um, and, and I say literally mean, like, I, I find people are very ungracious toward... Um, toward people that have mental health issues yeah um, because they can't imagine like why don't you just do this the answer is so simple um, but um, like somebody who's who's been through some kind of trauma like um, like the, the very expression of their genes is different than somebody who hasn't been through that uh, who hasn't been through some kind of trauma like like you you actually are changing the way your genes function in your body um, there's this like concept of, of learned helplessness. You put a bunch of dogs in a cage and, and you, you uh, electrocute them through the floor of the cage, but they're, they're trapped in there. This is a, uh, an experiment. I guess you can say an experiment in psychology. Um, it doesn't sound so, like a particularly humane, <laughs> humane experiment. No, it doesn't. Um, so so you, you, you electrocute the bottom of the cage. So the dogs are being electro electrocuted at intervals. And they try to get out, but the door where they came in is shut. And they learn that, that they cannot get out through that door. So eventually, you open the door, you electrocute the floor of the cage, and the dogs do not go. They, the, way is, the way was blocked for them, but now it's open, but it doesn't matter. They're, they're not aware of the fact mm -hmm. that the door is open. Like they stopped paying attention. Yeah, right. They stopped and, looking for it. Um, right. And I mean, like, you can't blame them for it. Like, this, it is in their nature to do what they're doing. It is in their nature to not find the way out. Um, so what you do, actually, is you can, you can put another dog in there who hasn't been electrocuted yet. And when he gets electrocuted, he's going to run out. And now every other dog sees what's going on, and every other dog can follow and, and escape. Mm -hmm. But but until until uh, until they have that, then well, that's interesting. Like you put another dog in there, who like hasn't given up, mm -hmm. right? And he shows the others the way. It's yeah. Like, well, that's how it works. Yeah. Right. Um, and and I mean, which is also <laughs> this idea of like Christ descending into the depths of hell. Yeah. It's like who's in hell. Like, not talking about who's in the afterlife of hell, but, like, who's in hell right now. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, it's those that have given up. Yeah, right. And the only hope for them is that you descend into their depths and yeah, show and, them and the way Yeah, and again, it's, it's, it's really difficult to condemn somebody for, for being in some kind of living hell, even though there are clear ways why, where they're creating their own problems, because, um, because probably they tried to get out but the door was shut and they tried again, but the door was shut and they tried again and the door was shut. And so they get to this point where, um, you like deep down in their soul, they know that it is impossible to, um, to, to reach out their hand and find the kingdom of heaven there. Yeah. Well, it's like, it strikes me like that's exactly what Paul says is like, man, man is lost in sin. Man is in death, in the depths of hell. Um, to frame it in the context of our discussion here. And like the only way for man to get out of that state is that God himself condescends, descends into the depths and delivers us. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's the one who is free of sin. Like that being that, essentially what that idea of that Christ is free of sin means is that like he's the, he's the one who's not blind like the rest of us are. Yeah, and it's like not not that I love Christ, but he loved me.
Right. Um, this is how we know what love is because Christ showed us the way. Yeah. Um, he gave his life for us. Right. And like, um, condes and like he condescended to man of low estate. We, we, we don't understand. Um, we can't we can't grasp it on our own. Like it's not possible for us to grasp it on our own. Um, maybe we've maybe we've tried and tried to find a good life, but you find the doors shut all the time. Mm -hmm. And like it strikes me that statement, Christ condescended to man of low estate, like talking about like this dealing with like mental illness or depression or suffering or struggling. It's like we don't want to condescend to their level. Like we want, what we want to do is stand in heaven and call out to them to come up and ascend with us. It's like well, that's what God did in the Old Testament. Is He called out to us? from heaven but like it didn't mean anything to us because we're blind so the only way like the only way for god was to come down himself and mm -hmm. show us yeah show us the way it's like and then he tells us like hey you know what you're supposed to do that right like you're not supposed to call out to the lost from heaven you're supposed to condescend to their level like i did for you mm -hmm. and bring them out yeah and and the you know the signs and wonders aren't sufficient the uh um I mean, the the Hebrews and the Exodus are, are constantly turning away from God in spite of the fact that they've got this pillar of fire yeah, that's right. leading them around. Um, well, it's like Moses is on the mount with God, and like there's a, there's fire on the mountain, mm -hmm. and they can see it yeah. the whole time. But they still, like, you know, Moses hasn't come down for a couple of days, so let's build a golden calf and worship it instead. <laughs> yeah. And, like, let's give up everything that's precious to us, like our own our own heirlooms, our own possessions to make this golden calf. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like condescending to our level means Christ takes on suffering. And like it strikes to me like that's what I don't want to do. Like if we're, go if we're tying back to this idea of evangelization, like evangelization isn't going to people and telling them the good news of the gospel. Like that's, that's a small part of it. Like a net and a necessary part of it, but that's not. Like I would say, like that's the smallest part of it. If you look at what Jesus says, like he says, he puts a lot more emphasis. Like yeah, he does say something about going out into the nations and preaching, and like sends his disciples and sends his followers out, like in large numbers to do that. But then like he also ties in with that like. What you're really called to do is suffer for the sake of the gospel, mm -hmm. and like I think that's essentially what we're talking about yeah, here. Yeah, I mean, he's when he calls, when he sends out his disciples, he's very clear that this is a mission of suffering. Right. And you will be persecuted. They hated me. They will hate you too. Um, people yeah. will people will kill you and think that they're serving God. Well, and like he also says, like if you mm -hmm. would follow me, what you have to do is deny yourself, lay down your own life, like die to self. And take up your cross, like which is significant because that's what he was about to do, literally. Mm -hmm. and, like he's using an image that they didn't understand at the time, but would become clear to them in a short matter of time. Like take up, take up your cross and follow me. And then immediately after them, he showed them what he meant when he literally took up his cross. Okay, I, I want to touch on a couple ideas. Um, we've we've kind of criticized this idea that. Um, Christianity is just about converting and then getting others to convert. Yeah, and I, like I've tried to tie into that the whole time. Like that's still part of it. Right. 
but like there's a whole lot of other things that are wrapped in with that that are being neglected. Okay, so I want to I want to just hit a couple of things in in a very simple way. One, and and this, I, I'm going to kind of frame this as part of like what is the purpose of the church, um, but we'll we'll talk about the individual's life as well. Um, the the purpose of the church I don't think is to to send out missionaries, mm-hmm. um, and and again not that not that that's something the church should not be doing necessarily. But, but it's um, not the thing that is at the center. That's not why the church exists, right? Um, now, in, in my mind, I think the purpose of the church ultimately is um, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Right. Um, and in, in worshiping God, you, you are transforming yourself into the person that you must be. You Greek heritage. Now, I, <laughs> I mentioned this, um, this uh, concern to our dad um, that that the purpose of the church is not to to send out missions and he said his answer was it's the perfecting of the saints right which is a really similar idea to to what i say about like the the worship of the lord so like the reason i made that joke (laughs) with what you said you greek heretic so like the center of greek theology and orthodox theology is theosis Mm -hmm. which is exactly what you just said yes um and and so uh, theosis is is the, the process of I mean uh, how how to how to put it in English the process of becoming God or becoming like God or becoming a God yeah um, I mean it's like you you can almost you can almost not even say it without without being branded a heretic maybe right. that was your your uh, your comment there um, now I I think um, I think it's it's like the most beautiful idea in all of Christianity um, yeah like and, they also say along with that is like nobody's ever completely done it mm-hmm. but but yeah I, I think the reason that i love it so much is because um in in so many churches the purpose of your life is um you don't have any clue what the purpose of your life is yeah. what the what is the purpose of your christian walk um and so you get this idea. Well, I can go spread the gospel out to other people, and again, like that—that that gives me some sense of purpose. Um, but but the idea of theosis is that this is the purpose of your life. You become like Christ, um, and and one way that can be is we've talked about the importance of incarnation. If you want to rescue people, it's it's through incarnation. Like the incarnation of Christ is what's able to rescue people. Yeah, right. And so you in your life. You must be like Christ. You must be like the incarnate Word, and that is what transforms other people. Yeah, and like there's a whole lot of things that that means, all at once, um, and some of them are are contradictory, at first. But like being being Christ, like you you become Christ, like symbolically you become Christ. Um, well, so I think, like you, I think you for find starters, this... one, one idea is, is this take up your cross and follow me, which is back to the suffering that we dealt with earlier. But go on with other thoughts. Yeah, so like you have this thought um, from Christian writers in the past. Maybe this is from St. Patrick. I'm not, I don't remember which one it's from. But this idea like you look at me and you don't see me, but you see Christ. Like I can't remember, is that St. Patrick or is that like maybe Francis? Well, or one I'm, of those. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, that's, um, um, like it's also reflective of something Paul says, like it's no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, 
There's this powerful uh, and statement. He, and he like, also says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Yeah, right. And it's like this idea that, uh, like, you look at me, and like I've expressed this, like this is my own aim as a Christian, and which I think sums up, like, the Christian aim, is to get to the point where you look at me, and you don't see me anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, instead what you see is Christ reflected in me. And so, like, Paul saying this, like, this is, this is what I hope you see when you see in me. So, like, look at me and do this. Like, as you see Christ in me, follow that. Yeah. So, like, he's not actually ever calling on people to follow him. He's calling on them to follow Christ reflected in him. Mm-hmm. And one other thing about, like, about who Christ is, how do you imitate Christ? Um, Christ's life was was devoted to following the will of the Father. And he's he's this model of perfect receptivity to God's will. Like, there's also a passage where Paul talks about, like, there, there's divisions among you. Like, you say you're a follower of this guy, and some say you're a follower of me, and some say they're a follower of this other guy. It's like, you're kind of completely missing our whole point. Like, you're not followers of us, you're followers of Christ in us. Like, that's who we, you're followers of Christ. Yeah, although one of the groups you mentioned is others who say followers of Christ. Like, <laughs> right. That's that's their way of saying that everybody else isn't following Christ, yeah. but our group is. Right. And, like, it's a condemnation against, like, dividing yourselves along, um, like, camps, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now, you'd mentioned in the past, you're more familiar with this than I am, um, an Anabaptist idea that you found to be very similar to this idea of theosis. Um, yeah, let me, I have to get my mind going on that. I wasn't prepared <laughs> okay, to think yeah. about that. Yeah, sorry, I, I sprung that on you. Um, I, like, I, guess, I guess the first thing that, like, the thing that comes immediately to mind is, like, the idea of Gelassenheit. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like a word I think you still found you still find that that German word used among the Amish. It's also a medieval idea, like it's an idea you find in Central Europe, like far back into the Middle Ages. Like notably, uh, Eckhart uses the word Gelassenheit, and like some people even try to say he made it up, um, made up the idea, like he's the originator of it. Mm-hmm. But it's like this idea of yieldedness, like. Um, like complete yielding of the self and becoming Christ. Like that. So, like the German mystics in the Middle Ages, and especially Eckhart, have this idea of like the inner spark, which the Catholics declare to be a heresy. And I'm not exactly sure why. Um, the Orthodox today still talk about the idea of the inner spark. Mm-hmm. It's like the this spark of the divine that's inside of you. Um, well, Catholics have a weird... Uh, sorry, I'm interrupting. I don't want to interrupt to, in order to yeah. criticize Catholicism. But it's like this... this, this uh, Orthodox idea of theosis is like deliberately stated, like directly stated as this idea of becoming God. Um, like you have to understand something of Eastern mysticism in order to understand what they're talking about. In a Western context, this will immediately sound like heresy. Like you're supplanting God. Mm-hmm. You're becoming God. You're like, you're esteeming yourself so highly. Well, and, that's and not John, what they mean John at all. Says, uh, 
we do not know what we will be, but we shall be like him. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's a good answer, I guess, to that. So it's like, uh, there's a cultural misunderstanding. I don't think anybody in the West would have used something like the term theosis, um, if for no other reasons than cultural ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, but more importantly, it's like this, uh, this process in orthodoxy, like, especially like this idea of the view of salvation as a process that involves these different things. Um, like the first step in theosis is catharsis. Um, and like a lot of people will be familiar with the word catharsis, but not in the way that the Greeks mean it. Um, but sort of, like it's derived from that idea. Like I think of in this, like in the term that it's used in the West today, like catharsis being like uh, misfortune that makes you stronger. Well, um, a, a lot of our use of catharsis comes from literature uh, through Aristotle mm-hmm. um, and on poetics. Um, catharsis is like, like that's the reason why you engage in a story. Because uh, like Plato didn't like stories because yeah, well, like, because in, so you, in, in poetry for Plato you experience emotions that you would be ashamed of for experiencing in real life. So Aristotle was a student of his and, and he said, well, it's actually good to experience those emotions. So um, you're, you're like, you're, you're, you're purging yourself of those emotions or you're cleansing yourself of, of negative emotion. And um, it, it would be very similar to this like Freudian idea of like, if you suppress the emotion, you're going to create psychological complexes for yourself. Yeah. So instead you need to purge. Uh, so, th- so that very heavily informs our, our concept of yeah, catharsis. Yeah, so like you might be talking about like how c- catharsis is used more in an academic sense, whereas I'm talking about like the pop culture use of the term, which is not quite the same. Well, I think I think a big part of the pop culture use is like we, we, we simplify it a little bit and focus on anger. Like yeah. um, I'm angry and it will be cathartic if I go out and... And right. punch, punch a pillow or chop down a tree or something yeah, like that. Yeah, which is not what catharsis is in theology, um, as I understand it. Like, maybe I'm a little, like, it's hard for me as a Westerner to sometimes bend down um, what the Greeks are talking about. But, like, it appears to me more along what you're saying relating to Aristotle, like this idea of purging yourself. So catharsis in Greek literally means purification. That's mm-hmm. how it would be translated. Yeah, and, and the, the idea of purging is like kind of, uh, I, this is, now I'm getting academic, it's, it's debated. Like some people really dislike calling it purging, and they want to call it cleansing instead. But yeah. uh, like I say, I'm getting a little academic there. Um, yeah. Um, but but you say purification, and that's that's a good, like, it, it kind of gets at both of those ideas. Yeah, um, well, like, I'll, and I'll interject really, really briefly here. Like this uh, results in a possible confusion in the Middle Ages in the combating against heresy. So you have the Cathars, which the word Cathar comes from the same word. Um, some of the Cathars, like the core of the Cathars against which they originally fought, like the um, Albigensian Crusade, were probably actual Gnostics. Um, but there's a high probability of confusion later in the Middle Ages with those labeled as Cathars because of their use of these Greek terms and like this Greek theology. And like, I look at it and I can see how this, this Greek idea of theosis and catharsis 
could very easily be misunderstood by the uh, inquisitors um, as Gnosticism, but it's not. Um, so anyway, like there's this idea, like in theosis, I'm, I'm not answering your question <laughs> very well. <laughs> um, there's this idea, like in theosis, like there's this process, like you have to purge yourself of your passions. That's a big deal in uh, orthodoxy. Like you have to deny your passions through discipline, through the putting on of uh, Christianity, basically, putting on of Christ. But like it's not all about. So like I would say like a lot of a lot of Christians stop at catharsis. It's like the way you deal with sin is through discipline. And like I encounter that a lot, especially like in mm -hmm. my in my own Anabaptist circles. We're really, we're really, really big on this idea of catharsis. Yeah. This well, idea of, of like the putting on of discipline and or like I like the I like the word passions, like instead of lusts, because mm -hmm. like it contains more and I think it gets better at the uh, at the root of what's going on. Yeah. Just so like you're denying the passions through discipline, that's not the answer to them though. Right. That's just like uh, you're bleeding and you need to stop the bleeding. So like wrap up your wound. Mm -hmm. But don't, but don't, but then just don't forget about it, or it will become infected and kill you. Yeah. Or like you might have to chop the whole arm off because it gets gangrenous. Yeah. Well, there's also like um, discipline itself affects you in, in mystical ways, you could say. Yeah. Um, I mean, you you have somebody whose um, whose life is chaotic. Uh, I'm the therapeutic boarding school that I worked at was was had like a very rigid structure, which for me was like uh, a little extreme. Um, but it's because we're working with these kids who, who come from like really chaotic backgrounds and mom or dad comes home and like, they don't know which mom or dad, like in the sense of like, okay, are you going to like me today? Or are you drunk and angry or whatever? Like there's no consistency. Well, I mean, you look at like coronavirus and the way that it's affected people mentally, a large part of the reason for it is because you don't know what to expect. The world is not as stable as it was anymore. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a more structured world, you can you can look to the future. You can make you can make sacrifices. Like you can make decisions today that will affect you tomorrow and will affect you next week and a year down the road. And if your world is not stable, you can't do that. So if you're a disciplined person, like um, you you do have the benefit of being able to. Well, when I say benefit. Like I'm critical of this idea of like let's just root out the sins in your life. Work hard. And, and by working hard, you can become the righteous person. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little critical of that. But at the same time, like through discipline, um, you you do undergo a kind of transformation that allows you to to focus on higher things. Mm -hmm. So like getting at this idea. So like like this is like a uh, a view of this salvation process. It's so like it starts with this catharsis. Like you recognize there's a problem. And I need to approach it with discipline and self-denial. And like self-denial is the way we as Anabaptists would look at the idea historically. Um, so it's like you're putting on self-denial through outward things. But that's not the end goal. Like that's not the cure-all. That's not the thing that saves you. But it's a step in the process. And then like the next uh, step in theosis is what they would, like the Greeks call it theoria. Which is basically worship. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like... The two steps in order to get to being like Christ is denying yourself and worshiping God. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I said, like the purpose of the church being worship the Lord and the beauty of the holiness. 
and and part of the reason why that's the purpose is because that does transform you in the ways that you want to be transformed well so like and, and that that i think is is superior to um to trying to root out your sins uh if you're if you're trying to like identify a sin in yourself and just be disciplined and get rid of it then um then you have this works-based salvation um you know, I, I saw this, this was like uh, Benjamin Franklin's approach to his his fault. He would keep a calendar of, like, different sins, you know. Um, and, I mean, he's, uh, he's like, basically a secular personality. Uh, he's not entirely closed to religion, but his, his approach is very materialistic. I um, mean, his approach to morality was, was very materialistic and very works-driven. So if he, if he thought that he... Um, had a particular sin, then he would mark it on the calendar um, for that day and just kind of go through the process and, and like try to identify these things and work hard at them and get rid of them and become the superior person through discipline. And um, and I, I do have to admit, like, there's something to admire in that. Yeah, but also, like, did it work? Well, um, I mean, I... It, it, it's hard to, I mean, he was a, a man of, of incredible accomplishments and, and a man of great wisdom in spite of, you know, I, I, I issue it as a criticism that he had this very material approach to, to life and to morality. Um, but, um, I mean, it, it's, I, I just, I, I would rather not be one to judge him and say like, well, he could have been this and he was this instead. Um, he he did have a lot of good values and he did accomplish a lot of good things, but um, but anyways, like I say, there there is something admirable about that. About that, like the the quest for self improvement is admirable. Mm -hmm. Like even if even if uh, even if you have kind of like a cringe way of doing it. So for me, this this felt like a very mechanical thing. I, I described him as being a moral machine. And I, I had a friend who like really delighted in that that phrase of mine for referring to to Franklin, um, because it's just like you turn the gears and you become a more moral person through this kind of like really rigid, structured discipline. Um, um, and and again, like there's there's value in it, but it's like it's it's works based. I won't say works based uh, salvation, but um, works based sanctification. Um, you just you work hard and you become the better person and and again for me like uh, a far better model that I think in practice works really well is Worship what is yeah. good worship God which is like and, goes and back you, to and you become you become a better person through the grace of God and not through Not through like all this discipline. Yeah, which like goes back to like that discussion we had on like Deliverance from depression. It's like that's it worship God. Mm-hmm like it sounds it might sound silly to those that are listening that are more secular in their mindset like well you tell people if they're depressed they need to worship god like what kind of a religious nut are you it's like well hey it works okay well i mean you you can also um i mean for someone who's who doesn't want to take the advice on that level then um then worship what is good right uh, yeah, like another know, way of wish putting it on the is highest like, star. Another way to um, put it, like you that you might you might hear in a more secular setting, is like look for things to be thankful for. Yeah, right. Well, but even even this idea of worship, you mentioned singing before. Um, you know, if you're not singing songs to God, and instead you're 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 singing um, some song that you loved when you were a kid, 
or some song that your 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 dad sang or whatever. Yeah, like, like something you've got some sort of special connection to, um, or um, I'm not going to be comfortable with saying like that it's the same thing and it's equivalent, but like no, but it, it's, but, it's but, sort of pushing towards the same thing. It's it's pushing toward the same because it's good. <laughs> like, right. Um, if I mean if if you if you cannot conceive of the highest good that exists. Um, I, that's no shame on you. Like yeah, right. the the highest good that you can well, conceive. Yeah, of. it's like Jordan Peterson mentions that is like uh, aim for the highest good that you can actually. Yeah, right. Actually, think about like right. don't try to aim like don't aim for something that like doesn't mean anything to you. Yeah, and then you're just gonna like fall apart. Um, I mean, I'm 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 with you. I I am uh, I I host a a program um, where I I interview creative people, mostly musicians, um, but others as well. You know, poets and playwrights, um, people like that. And I, I had this guy on there that was a, a folk musician. And, um, I mean, I liked him. He, he had a lot of uh, influences that were like all the old commie, communist uh, folk musicians. And, and so there's sort of this, um, I don't know, like this, this bend toward politics. But I feel like even the, the folk musicians today who, who admire those guys still... They, they seem to have an intelligence about the fact that um, that music is not about politics. It's about something better than politics. Yeah. Um, and so so I'm, I'm always happy about that. Like when I when I see these, yeah. um, again, these communist folk musicians. Uh, I shouldn't call this guy a communist. Uh, that's really unfair of me. But like when I see people who are who are like influenced by that tradition, yeah. Um, still, still recognize there's a higher purpose in music. So, like in the discussion, uh, anyway, of... I brought it up just to, to. I'll just finish up the point. Um, this guy leads um, community sings, and it was Pete Seeger that influenced him to do this. Pete Seeger told him that the, the, um, the best thing that he ever did in his life was putting a song on people's lips. And so, so this man, his name is Matt Watroba, uh, like took this kind of as a personal personal mission. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead folk sings, community sings. They're not concerts. People will get together and they'll sing songs. Yeah. And like I, um, you know, I'm on board and I'm like trying to promote his his vision in a way. In my own mind, I think um, what is better is if you are worshiping God. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, like what you are doing is better than not doing it <laughs> well it's like uh at least restore people to a state where they can uh comprehend the concept of god yeah right um so like this is something i'll point out and like this i'm directing this at my fellow mennonites so our and like the the anabaptists in like the 1500s and 1600s and the medieval predecessors like that like stood before us, they did not forsake the liturgy or the sacraments of the church. Like, there are a few that did, but there are very few that did. And like, we have record of this as historical fact. So they set themselves apart from the Catholics and then later from the Reformed, the Swiss Reformed people in their beliefs and in their, in their lives, but they did not forsake the liturgy. And they did not forsake the sacraments. They continued to participate in them. And like that's that's a huge thing. Because like what they what they recognize is this is the worship of God. That this is the temple of God. This is the place where we gather to experience and to see God and to know God. 
And it's like part of the reason I think why our Anabaptist heritage is iconoclastic is because we in the past existed in a position where we didn't need icons, if that makes sense. Like I personally, in my view of things, I'm not iconoclastic. Mm -hmm. um, and like I find very little justification for being iconoclastic. Yeah. Um, it's like I think the reason why we don't have images is because we didn't have to because we had them already. It's like we, we saw the church as the church. Um, recognize the error of those that, like uh, the, those that led the liturgy, and those that said the prayers, but like also recognizing what Jesus said that they sit in Moses' seat and observe the things that they command you to observe. Mm -hmm. um, and like this relates to this idea of worship, like. We're continuing this ancient, we're continuing in the ancient practices of the church, basically until we come to America and like, or until like we're overtly forced out of it. And I think this is something that is damaging to us. Like it fractures our, our identity and fractures our theology and our, uh, and our understanding. So like we have this idea, like relating this, like how is our Anabaptist theology secretly the same thing as theosis? Because like the aim of our of our whole life is that everything is an act of worship and self-denial all at once. Yeah, right. Which is this like catharsis and theoria combined into one act. Mm -hmm. um, and like this is this continual process. We're still attending the liturgy. Yeah. Like this is an ancient thing that was recognized, I believe was recognized by our ancestors as being important. Yeah. And like personally, I like maybe this is another thing that I'll say that might get me in some trouble. Like, I think it's wrong to separate ourselves from the liturgy. And like, it's been hard over the last year or so with COVID and all those things. But like, I made a goal for myself a couple of years ago. Like, I want to attend an Orthodox liturgy at least once a year. Yeah. And the reason for that is this is my connection to the apostles. Like what they have, what the liturgy is, is something that is ancient. It is a continuation of the temple. Like literally, it is a continuation of temple practices. Mm -hmm. And like I don't, I don't think that's something that I should be discarding. Like, and it's because of that idea of worship, um, and also that idea of like tying back to this ancient faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, like part of that. Uh, I mean, there's. Uh, kind of a quest for purity that a lot of people have in trying to reach back to the, the apostolic age or whatever. Like, we can have a more pure form of faith than what was handed down to us if we can if we can connect with the apostles more. Mm -hmm. um, but I think also, um, just in terms of, like, the transcendent experience of worship... Well, yeah, and it's like, um, that's, that's like, what... I mean, that's that's almost like, like discarding any theological point you make about it. Like, if you have something that, that connects... To, to the ancient world yeah. that you are a participant in. Which is what the theology of liturgy is. Mm -hmm. It's like this is a transcendent, transcendent moment that like you're united with all of space and time in that moment. Yeah, right. And it's like, well, that's because you actually are. Right. Now, I mean, I think, I think that Christians should be making music um, there should be some like writing of music that takes place in the church. So I'm not I'm not opposed to 
uh, like the idea of, of Christian music that is contemporary. Right. Um, but if if I'm in a church that's like just sold out to um, contemporary Christian music, and and not just music, but uh, but I, maybe I should just say contemporary Christian worship, then um, then I just I feel like like I'm isolated. Well, there's also there's nothing sacred. Right to it, and like this is something I'm amazed that even the people that are proponents of this, if I make that comment, they're like, "Yeah, you know what? You're right." Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there, there's, um, but there, there is this idea that like that people have that, um, that anything sacred is like it's it's a joke in a way. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's a mistake to regard anything as sacred. Um, because that that detracts from the idea that everything is sacred, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know. I mean, like like when when Jesus said pray continually, I don't think he was saying don't pray, <laughs> like yeah. don't have moments where you sit and pray and like have this this sacred concentrated prayer just because everything is prayer. Well, it's like everything exists in a hierarchy. Right. Yeah. It's a good way of looking at it. Like you have things that are sacred. And then you have things, you have sacred things that are sacred. Mm-hmm. And then you have the most sacred things. So it's like, you see this reflected in the architecture of the temple. Well, I even mentioned like, so um, like the, 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 the house being sacred. Yeah. It's not sacred to the community in the same way that the temple is sacred. Yeah. But it is sacred to the family. But like the temple is divided into courts. And like courts within courts. Rooms within rooms. And like, mm-hmm. as you go into the temple, like the whole of the temple, like even the outer courts, like the courts of the Gentiles and all of this, and like the places where the animals are kept and like the the dirty smelly barns on the edges of the temple like this is all sacred yeah this entire structure is a sacred place within a sacred city within a sacred nation mm-hmm. um but then like you go inside the temple it's like you have the outer courts and then you go into the sanctuary and it's like this is this really sacred place but then inside the sanctuary there's the holy place where only the priests are allowed Mm-hmm. It's like this is this really, really sacred place, and then inside of that, there's the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest is allowed to go once a year. Right. And like, if he goes in unprepared, he will drop dead immediately. Well, and again, like, I don't I, know I, that. I that's... think the the like um, anti-sacred attitude um, it says like, well, hey, the veil's torn, there is no more sacred place anymore. Yeah. Like they will acknowledge what you're saying, but they'll still say um, that's not the way it is now, um, because everything's sacred. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I sense, yes, so I like, sense that people who, who believe that some things should be sacred have a much greater sense that everything is sacred. Right. And like, that's not the way the early Christians looked at the rending of the veil. Right. That, like, now, like, they didn't look at it well, like now. obviously, I mean. So, like, they look at it the opposite way that we do. Like, they didn't look at it like now everybody is allowed at any time into the Holy of Holies. Like, we have complete access to the altar in the temple. It's like, no, that's the opposite. The veil rent. And God came out. Mm-hmm. So, like in our in in the I guess we'll call them the old churches, the Roman churches, they have they have a sanctuary inside the church. I'm not exactly sure how this exists in modern Catholicism. I'd be speaking more from a perspective of medieval Catholicism, which, which I studied quite a bit more. Um, just interests me a lot more. Like they'll have a they'll have a sanctuary within the within the temple that most of the time the only people allowed in there are the priests. Mm-hmm. But once a year, the entire city 
is allowed to to go in procession through the sanctuary around the altar like that's easter yeah so it's like this idea like this is accessible but like it's still a sacred place mm -hmm. and so like they're not they're not saying to like a protestant will take that idea and misunderstand it and saying like you're not allowed access to the sanctuary um, and it's just on this one time in the year we allow you a glimpse of it. Like, no, that's not, that's not the point. The point is this is a sacred place. The overall arching theology is that everyone is allowed at the altar. Um, but we want you to remember that it's sacred. Yeah. And the way we, we remind you of that is by preserving this sacredness. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we want to wrap this up pretty soon yeah um we probably should get back to the idea of salvation <laughs> yeah i up. mean we we might uh we might touch on on this idea of sacredness again yeah but like time. i guess like it's just worth pointing out like the subject of salvation is very very big and like and like we say it's something that contains everything um like i think it's probably inevitable if you're having it if you're having an actual sub an actual discussion of the topic that your discussion will go everywhere. Well, it, it, it goes everywhere for us because for because in this perspective that we're taking, salvation is not like this uh, one-time experience. Now yeah. you, you do have you do have um, an important moment or perhaps multiple uh, important moments of major transformation in your life and and uh, where you change your direction toward from we'll just say like hell bound to heaven bound. Yeah. Uh, you have these ma these major turning points. Those do exist, but um, but salvation is um, is also like well, it, it is this transformation to becoming like Christ, which does not happen in a moment. So it happens throughout the life. There's two symbols, I guess. I, and, I, I, and beyond two symbols, I guess, I'd use to represent that. Like one is one I already used of the wheel. Like salvation is at the center of the wheel, like upon which the world turns. That means everything is tied back to it. Everything is is tied into it, like the hub of the wheel, mm -hmm. or not the hub, the spoke. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess that's that's part of what bothers me about about um, the sort of uh, um, like shallow version of salvation is, is that, that not it, everything gets yeah. back to it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But then also, like in the catacombs in Rome, you have the cross is depicted as an anchor. Um, and like part of that is because the way an anchor was made at that point in history looked rather similar to a cross and like they recognize like there's some meaning in that like the cross is the anchor of reality like the cross is the anchor of, your, of the face it's the anchor of the whole world and like that's that same idea it's like everything is anchored in salvation and in the cross mm -hmm. um, so yeah like I like that idea of like salvation is this axis upon which the world turns like that means everything roots back into it but it's like it's also not it's not a single thing so like we've talked about a lot of different things throughout the course of this discussion that are like the cycle of salvation repeating in something in your life so it's like you have this we'll go back to this theosis process of you know going through catharsis and theoria like going through like encountering your demons and struggling against them and denying them and then worshiping in them um it's like this is something that like that's that's like a microcosm like a, a picture of salvation and it's something that you encounter like you have your moment of salvation which is like this moment where your whole world turns about on the axis 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like, you also have all of these little moments of salvation. Like, you encounter all of these things that are, like, little salvations. Yeah. Um, and, like, that's my view of salvation. It's like, salvation is, is one thing, but it's also not. Mm-hmm. Like, it's both at the same time. And, like, you can't distinguish the one thing from all of the other little things that are also it. Yeah. Now, I want to mention also, um, there is a concept that salvation includes this idea of justification, which is this kind of, like, one and done, you got your ticket to heaven kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Sanctification, which is this ongoing transformation in your life. And then um, glorification, um, which would be like your your ascent into paradise yeah. after y- your life is over. Um, well, so that's actually a very ancient idea. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't really hear that uh, among Mennonites very much or among no, Anabaptists. No, I hear it among Baptists. Yeah, right. Um, but um, you also hear it, interestingly enough, those same terms used by the Orthodox. Well, what I've what I've heard of, of an Orthodox perspective is that these are not like um, step one, step two, and step three. Yeah, right. Um, but but these things are all wrapped in together, and um, and it's sort of all a process that's ongoing throughout your life, um, which which is sits well with my approach. Um, and so I, I wanted to mention that just because because somebody could listen to this and say like, well, all you guys are talking about is sanctification. But, you know, I, I hear over and over again um, people people feeling like they need to preach this message that um, we, we, we focus on um, winning souls over to Christ, but we also need to focus on discipleship. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's sort of a losing battle. Um, we're always going to fail in discipleship if we hold the, the ultimate goal to be this sort of moment of salvation. Right. You, you, you cannot... You cannot succeed. Like if that's your if that's your basic framework, then you can encourage people to do more discipleship, but that's that's not the purpose of their life, according to what you've taught them. So they're not going to pick that up. And so I think what you actually need um, is is a concept of salvation that includes the ongoing transformation of a person throughout their life to become like Christ. Yeah. So it's like my view of, the, of salvation. Like again, it's like it's it's the it's the center. It's the axis on, of the wheel upon which things turn but like it's like you, that that view of salvation is like it's a net and you walk in the net and get catapulted because it's the net of a catapult <laughs> and get catapulted to heaven yeah okay <laughs> i like images <laughs> but it's like uh if you understand something about uh human uh frailty like if you step in a catapult and get catapulted, like you're dead. Yeah. Um. Any any last words on salvation uh, before before I, your life ends? <laughs> I mean, I think like this is something that's probably going to keep coming back and back is this idea. Um. But uh, I guess as far as last words uh, before I die, <laughs> famous last words. Um. Yeah, just like. Uh, Again, just summarize the idea. Like, salvation isn't... Like, it is a one-time thing, but it's also not. Um, On the one hand, like, it's a moment of transformation, but, like, it's a transformation towards something. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's something that's continually at the center of existence. The center of your life is this 
is Christ. It's the cross. It's salvation. Like they're all the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like it's always there at the center. It's not something that there's this historical moment of salvation and then you're moving further and further away from it. It's like no, it's all you're always you're it's always there at the center. Right. And like that also implies like that also implies that like it's always moving with you and you're always moving forward. It's like if you're not if you're not turning, if you're not moving, like what are you doing? Mm -hmm. It's like I always ask the question to people when when asking about when talking about salvation is like People tend to look at salvation as, like, what is it that you're saved from? It's like, well, that's not really even a, a reasonable question, because it's, for one thing, it's obvious. But, like, the real question is, what are you saved to? Yeah. Um, boy, I, I, I want to mention one idea, because it keeps popping up on my mind, and I, I really want to wrap up the conversation, but I still want to say <laughs> it. Um, again, Mertia Eliada also has this idea of eternal return, um, your religious rituals are always reaching back to the beginning, and not only religious rituals, but any kind of ritual. So creation is is of the utmost importance because it's the beginning. Um, you, we are, as Christians, we're always reaching back toward that apostolic age, um, and in a way, it seems like is that actually logical? Um, did they really have a better faith than yeah. other people? Because because well, like there, there, were things, there were things, there were things, there were things, no. <laughs> well, there, there were certainly things that they didn't have figured out theologically that other people yeah. do have figured out. And there may be things that they didn't have figured out spiritually that, uh, future generations were able to figure out. Is it, is it really the best form of faith? Well, the reason we go back to it is because it's the beginning yeah. and there's something very compelling about that. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate anniversaries because we're celebrating the beginning of something. Yeah. Um, I, in a, I'm, I'm in a band with somebody who, um, his advice in writing love songs is is um, just try to remember when you I mean we're both married uh, try to remember when you first met her uh, it's the same idea that I, I mentioned that example just because it's a totally non-religious context um, if you remember the beginning then you can have uh, a pure love song okay so we've got this push toward beginnings but in in salvation I kind of see the same thing like it's there's this there's this crucial turning point crucial is a deliberate word choice there this this crucial turning point that transforms your life but it's also the center of the wheel that's moving with you like your your ongoing process of transformation in a way is like carrying that that initial transformation with you and carrying it forward carrying that beginning moment forward with you in your life mm -hmm. um the the other thing that i wanted to mention as closing remarks was similar to what you'd said but just simply that um, I think that it is a mistake to look at your salvation as something that exists in the past. Yeah, right. This was, this was a moment that is behind you, and um, I think that robs you of your future uh, in a way. I think your, your salvation, again, is this, this ongoing process of transformation, well, it's of, like... of becoming more and more like Christ. It's the perfection of the saints. It's the, the higher and higher worship of God throughout the course of your life. Well, like, like Jesus makes a statement to the Pharisees that on the surface seems like absolute and total nonsense. He says, like, look at what God says, that I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so, like, you conclude from that, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. It's like, well, how does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because these guys are all dead. Yeah. But it's right. like what he's saying is, like, this isn't 
Like, this isn't something that is in the past and you're moving away from it. Mm -hmm. Like, what God is is something that's rooted now. Like, this, this is something that is now and, like, it reaches back into the past and into eternity. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's what our faith is and, like, that's also what our salvation is. Like, going back, like, our salvation is rooted... So, like, you have this depiction of the Last Judgment in the Middle Ages, which is arranged from top to bottom and from left to right. So it's like, you can say from top to bottom is from heaven to hell, but left to right isn't necessarily bad on the left and good on the right. <laughs> We're going to need to wrap this up. You're... Well, yeah. Like, the reason I say this is, it's like this, uh, this salvation is this thing that reaches from heaven to hell, but also from, like... To eternity mm -hmm. and into the past that's like that's what your faith is like it's something that is eternally present okay well i think we'll wrap it up there um so thanks for listening hopefully we'll see you next time thank you for listening if you would like to support this podcast then all that we ask is for you to subscribe Think of a friend who might enjoy it and share it with them. And please join us again for another walk in the woods, another conversation, and another journey in the sacred life.